Well, uh, good morning again, Sound City. Again, I am Shane. I am one of the pastors as well. For any who are new or uh, who I have not had the chance to meet yet either, uh, it's great to be worshiping with you today. It's great to be opening God's Word with you today. And in our time this morning, what we get to do is we get to dig a little bit deeper into uh, chapter 1 in Hebrews. In fact, go through the rest of chapter 1 in Hebrews that we haven't already covered. And we're even going to cover uh, verses 1 through 3 that Pastor Aaron went over really well last time, but it sets so much of the context for where we're going in the rest of the chapter that we're going to go back through that a little bit as well. So we've got a lot for us to unpack. So if you didn't listen to Pastor Aaron and open your Bibles, then now would be a good time for you to go ahead and do that. And you can then follow along as I read our passage for us, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dig in a little deeper together. This is the word of our Lord from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Sound City, may we be blessed by the hearing of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're grateful that in your providence, you've purposed to gather this group of people together today as your people, as your bride, so that we might be taught and convicted and encouraged and our hearts examined through the preaching of your perfect word. We trust, God, that it's no accident that any of us is here today, and so I pray for myself and I pray for these friends, God, that you would give each of us ears to hear exactly what you've prepared for us to receive from you today. And I pray that through your Holy Spirit that you would get me out of the way now, that you would lead me in my efforts to faithfully share your word with your people for your glory and our good. And I pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So, a lot in there about angels in the chapter we just read, huh? What do we think about angels? Well, they're a big topic in the passage, and they're a pretty big topic in our culture as well, both in years past and even today. 
as I was doing some research for uh, this morning, I stumbled across a couple different polls or surveys from the past. There was a Time Magazine poll in 1993 that uh, told us this about Americans' beliefs in angels, that 69% of American adults believe that angels are real. That's 1993. And that 46% of American adults acknowledged a belief in their own personal guardian angel. Okay, so that's 1993. In 2009, just 16 years later, there was a Barna poll that showed uh, something pretty different. It showed that slightly less than 40% of Christians now, the first one was wider population. This is uh, self-professed Christians Less than 40% believed that a person could be influenced by spiritual forces like angels and demons. Less than 40% of Christians. Then in, uh, even more recently, in a 2013 Harris poll, we saw that about 68% of of older uh, Americans, of the 68 age range or older, believed in angels, while only about 59% of those ages 18 through 36 believed angels were real. This was also an interesting part of the Harris poll. Who do you guys think believed in angels more, Democrats, Republicans, or independents? What do you think? Independents. Independents. See, at least there's a few people willing to participate. They were scared of politics in the 9 o'clock. Uh, 11% more Republicans believe in angels than do Democrats or independents. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Another way I tried to take the pulse on this whole angels thing this week as I was preparing was I just went to Amazon.com and just did a search on the topic of angels. And we, this is how many results, 128,911 results on the topic of angels in Amazon's catalog. And then there were a number of subcategories. You know how it lists subcategories on the, on the side when you do a search in Amazon? I'm going to read you a few of the subcategories and how many hits were against some of these subcategories. There were over, one of the largest categories was 20,000, more than 20,000 in the religion and spirituality subcategory under angels. Okay, that one's not so surprising. Over 9,000 hits in the romance subcategory under angels. Over 8,000 in new age and spirituality subcategory. Over 7,000 in science fiction and fantasy all under the category of angels. Uh, over 5,000 in the subcategory of angels and spirit guides. Uh, almost 4,000 in self-help as a subcategory under angels. Over 3,000 in political and social sciences. 3,120 in paranormal and urban fantasy, whatever that scary thing is. <laughs> and over 2,000 in health, fitness, and dieting. <laughs> I don't think I've ever read a diet book that talked about angels. Uh, But it seems, as strange as this list is, it seems uh, at least that there's quite a bit of interest in angels in in our culture. Even as uh, more and more people identify as non-religious, while that number's on the rise, it seems that there's just still plenty of interest in the topic of angels, even if it's misguided a bit based on what we see on Amazon. Uh, But since most of us here today are Christians, one of the most important questions we want to ask as we think about angels is, what does the Bible say? And so when we look at the Bible, we have 104 instances of the Hebrew words that translate as angel in the Old Testament, so 104 Old Testament instances, and 168 of the Greek words that we translate as angel in the New Testament, so 168 New Testament instances of angels. So it seems like the Bible is pretty interested in angels, too, and we know from our reading of Hebrews chapter 1 just a second ago uh, that that chapter is pretty interested in angels for sure. 
But before we get back to Hebrews 1, let's first do this. Let's go back and remember the historical circumstances that brought about the need for God to cause a human author to write down this sermon, to write down the book of Hebrews, because I think that'll help us quite a bit in understanding the rest of Hebrews 1 and then also the rest of the book as we move forward in weeks to come. And so here is a little bit of the setting and background again. Pastor Aaron touched on a little of this, but I want to give you a little bit more. Uh, So we're probably looking at uh, somewhere around the mid-60s AD at the time of the writing of this sermon or letter. We're probably in the city of Rome uh, where the letter was written. This would be, uh, of course, if we're in 60 AD or so, it's about 30 years after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father, of which Hebrews 1 speaks, about 30 years after the time of Jesus when Hebrews is written. Um, Many of the apostles and other eyewitnesses um, of the events of the cross and uh, those who had met Jesus are very, very old at this point. Many have probably already died. The apostle Peter is likely dead at this point. The apostle Paul, who had been a real spiritual father to the Christians in Rome, uh, he was uh, either still imprisoned in Rome or more likely was also uh, probably passed at the time of the book of Hebrews writing. And so the situation is there's, there's likely no authoritative apostle there in Rome with the Roman Christians at this time to encourage them in persevering in their faith in Jesus. The Christianity was kind of branded in the culture as being almost like a criminal, a band of criminals a bit. And uh, many of these Christians, these Jewish Christians, began to realize that hey, if if our synagogues were to stop with all this Jesus is God stuff and this Jesus is the promised Messiah business, things would probably go a little bit better for us. The social pressure from their friends and neighbors would have also been significant, pushing them to abandon these strange and dangerous claims about Jesus and encouraging them to, to just go back to the faith of their youth. The pressure to revert to Judaism from their governmental oppressors of the Roman Empire would have been equally significant as Judaism was a sponsored faith. It was a legally approved religion of the Roman Empire, while Christianity at this time certainly was not. And so with all that pressure, with the fading leadership influence of several of Jesus' apostles who were no longer on the scene there to encourage them, their doubts grew and their faith in Jesus weakened. So that's the scene we find ourselves in as the first words of the book of Hebrews are spoken in verse 1, chapter 1, which say this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And so the author of Hebrews, recognizing the hurt and confusion of this people and their doubts in the midst of this season of persecution, he begins to encourage them and to build his argument that their faith in Jesus is not misplaced at all. He makes four comparisons, which uh, Pastor Aaron talked about a little bit last week. And through these comparisons, the author of Hebrews begins to make his case that the old ways of their fathers and forefathers' faith have indeed been superseded in Christ. I think we've got the comparisons up there for you. Then next, in, verse, in the second half of verse 2, and then on through verse 4, the author of Hebrews strengthens his case further still, pleading with these Jewish Christians about their doubts and about their lack of faith in Jesus by listing seven affirmations concerning the nature and the character of Jesus. Let's take a look. We'll pick it up again in verse 2 here. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In verse 2 there, we find the first two of these seven affirmations about the nature and character of Jesus. First, affirmation one is that Jesus has been appointed by God to be the heir of all things. I'd love it to be in all caps, the word all in, in, in your scriptures, if I could make it that way. I mean, it's a, this is all things. I think we breeze right by it, but, but this is not just some things, not just a few things, like everything. Then still in verse two, we have affirmation number two, which is just this tiny little thing like you know, creating the world, like creating the whole universe and everything in it. Just a tiny little thing that Jesus did. Verse two says that it's through Jesus, the son, that God created the world. Then in verse 3, we have affirmations in number 3 through 6. Affirmation number 3 is that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so what's being said here is that Jesus is like light, radiating from its source. That Jesus is the very substance of God, radiating out from God the Father. It almost sounds like the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is God, doesn't it? Let's, let's not miss the bigness of that statement and what it should mean to us and what the author of Hebrews was hoping it would mean to these Jewish Christians that were doubting Jesus was better than the alternatives. To make the point even clearer then, in verse 3, as it continues, it says that Jesus is also the exact imprint of God's nature. Now, the Greek word being used here for imprint, what it signifies is this idea of, it, of exact representation and reproduction, it's like the impression uh, made on every instance of a single type of a coin. One scholar said this, that this verse is calling out the authentic sameness that Jesus has with God the Father. I like that. The, the authentic sameness that Jesus shares with God the Father. It's a huge statement, this verse, con- concerning the deity of Jesus. A huge statement. Affirmation number four, then, is from the middle of verse three, where it says, and he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this is what this means. This means that, like, that at any moment in the history of the world, we could say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, you busy? And he'd be like, well, you know, I've kind of got this whole thing where I'm upholding the universe by the word of my power going on, but like, I'm a pretty good multitasker, so did you want to pray about something? Like he's always, like anytime we engage with him, anytime we're in the word, anytime we're praying, and he's always upholding the universe by the word of his power. That's amazing. Affirmation five then comes from the next clause in verse three, where again, just this little tiny thing that Jesus did, like making purification for all human sin ever. Then at the end of verse three, we get affirmation number six, saying of Jesus that after he made purification for all human sin, once for all, that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, this is a critical statement that the author of Hebrews is making here, and it really becomes the pivot point around which the rest of the whole book moves. And we'll see this throughout the next year as we go through this series, these two facts that represent what the author of Hebrews deems to be the strongest arguments available concerning the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus. It means absolutely everything to the author of Hebrews, that one, Jesus made purification for sins, and that two, He then ascended to heaven afterwards and is there enthroned at the position of supreme authority at God's right hand. These Jewish Christians, 
that the book of Hebrews was written to, the first readers and hearers of this sermon, this letter, they'd have known right away upon hearing this that the author of Hebrews was pulling forward a messianic understanding of Psalm 110, verse 1, where God the Father says to the Davidic king, sit at my right hand. They'd have known right away that he was saying here that Jesus is that Davidic king, that long-promised Savior and Messiah alluded to in Psalm 89, 4, among many other places in the Old Testament, where God says to King David, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. These Jewish Christians would have known from Scripture and culture that to be seated at the king's right hand was to have the king's very authority. They'd have known that the reality of Jesus sitting down they'd have known that that was a huge deal, that that was really significant, and that what it meant was that the work of making purifications for sin was absolutely and totally forever finished and completed. So before we go further, let's take a minute. Let's take stock of what we've seen just so far. We've got a bunch of early Christians who have been trying to make a go at this following Jesus thing, and now some years into the life of faith, they're struggling. They're struggling. Family, friends, employers, government are all pretty much mocking them and their way of life, mocking their Savior, and all of this made life hard for these Christians and a little bit dangerous as well. And they started wondering, maybe, maybe it shouldn't be so hard. Maybe there's another way, an easier way for me to live. Wouldn't it be sweet, they might have been thinking, to be supported by my government, by my community, by my family again? Maybe faith in Jesus and a life lived for Christ just aren't worth it. Sound City, let me ask, does any of that feel familiar to you? Like, does any of that, you don't have to raise your hands, but does any of that resonate with you as true of you? Have you ever felt looked down on for being a Christian? That would have been a silly question to ask when I was living in Texas, but, but not so out here. Have you ever avoided sharing with someone that you're a Christian because you're scared of what people might think or say? Have you ever felt like you've been discriminated against for being a follower of Jesus? Have you, as, as a Christian, ever wondered, should it be this hard? Isn't there maybe an easier way for me to live? If you're really honest, have you ever had doubts about Jesus? doubts about your faith in him, doubts about living a life devoted to following him. Now, most of you, as I'm asking those questions, you've probably already in your hearts said, yeah, I've felt that way at times. Yes, I've struggled with how hard faith in Jesus seems at times. Yes, I've doubted in Jesus. But just to make sure we've got everyone for the benefit of those who don't think they struggle with doubting Jesus, let me ask you this. What would you call it what would you call what you're doing each and every time you knowingly choose to sin? When we knowingly disobey God's word, we sin against him and we prove our lack of faith in Jesus and his ways. When we knowingly choose sin, we show that we doubt that Jesus is better. We show that we doubt that Jesus is worth it. But the author of Hebrews had good news for those Christians who were in the midst of these struggles and doubts. And your God, through the sermon God wrote, this book of Hebrews, has good news to encourage you and me in our doubts as well. And this is the encouragement we've seen so far in these seven affirmations and then these, just these three verses 
Again, affirmation number one, Jesus is the rightful heir of all things, of everything. This is the heir. This Jesus is the heir that we've put our faith in. Affirmation number two, God the Father created the universe through God the Son, through this Jesus. This creator of the universe is the one that we've pledged our lives to follow. Affirmation number three, Jesus has authentic sameness with God the Father. He's the exact imprint and reproduction of the nature of God the Father. See also, Jesus is God. Affirmation number four, Jesus not only created the world, but moment to moment, right now, this very second, he is upholding the universe, all of this, by the word of his power. Affirmation number five, this God, this Jesus, he loved us so much that he came into this world and then he died for you and me in our place to make purification for our sin, chapter one of Hebrews says. That's who this Jesus is. And then affirmation number six, Jesus sat down on the throne at the right hand of God the Father to show his people that there should be no doubt about who he is, that there should be no doubt that his saving work for them was fully, fully accomplished. Christians in the room, does that encourage you? Is this Jesus one who is worth your faith, this one that we've just been talking about? Is this Jesus that we've just been talking about, is he one who's worth giving your life to follow? Non-Christians in the room, what are you waiting for? Are you looking for someone with a better resume than this to give your life to? Someone with a better resume than this to save you? Well, if that's you, and you've never put your faith in Jesus as Savior, you've never given your life to him, to following him as Lord. If you're still doubting, just hang on. Hebrews 1 has even more to teach us yet, and even more to add to Jesus' resume before we're through this morning. So let's keep going. We'll pick up again at verse 3, where we got affirmation number 6, and then we'll hit verse 4, which gives us affirmation number 7 concerning Jesus. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So affirmation number seven is that Jesus, in addition to all those other six affirmations that have already filled up his resume, in addition to all that, he's also superior to the angels. And even the name he's inherited as God's son is greater than the name that the angels have. Now, the language of verse 4 here is a little bit tricky. The first of many passages that are tricky, just forewarning. Uh, the words here, having become superior, can seem to be saying to us that maybe there was a time where Jesus wasn't superior to the angels, but that's not what it's meaning to suggest. So let me try and make a long set of explanations on that point, at least a little bit shorter. What's happening here is that uh, for most of us, we've probably got our English Standard Version, our ESV translation, which is committed to what's called an essentially literal approach to translating the Greek into English. Uh, just by way of review, our, our New Testament is based on Greek original manuscripts, and it's translated into other languages, and so that's what I'm talking about when I say that. Um, and so what the ESV folks are doing is they want to use the closest English words they can to the Greek. But once in a while, the closest English words to the original Greek don't exactly communicate the same idea as what's in the Greek. There's not a one-for-one -one match. So said another way, we've got a complicated set of Greek going on behind verse 4 here. And the commitment of the ESV to a word-to-word -word translation and many other translations that we have make it challenging for us from an understanding and from a clarity perspective. And this is just something that lots of Bible translations have to deal with. All of them have to deal with in one way or another. So 
If we loosen up on our word-for-word translation methodology a little bit, and if we instead try and capture the idea of what's being said in the Greek here in verse 4, then we get a little bit more of something like this. Again, starting in 3, in the middle of verse 3. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. Now, this is from the New Living Translation, the NLT, which takes a more thought-for-thought approach to its translation into English than many of our other more literal word-for-word approach translations like the ESV. And so in this case, that really helps us a great deal in understanding more clearly what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us, which is this. He's saying that by making purification for sins and then by sitting down at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, Jesus showed himself through those things to be superior to the angels, which is a reality that matches up to the fact that the name God has given Jesus is greater than the names given to the angels. Then for the rest of chapter one, for the rest of our time, the rest of the ground we'll cover this morning, verses five through 14, what the author of Hebrews then does is now makes seven biblical arguments in defense of his seventh affirmation about Jesus that he's better than the angels. So I made a chart to make it make sense. So seven affirmations, Jesus is superior to the angels being the seventh affirmation about the nature and character of Jesus. And now, like any good pastor or scholar would, he's going to go to the Bible and he's going to back up what he's said already with scripture. And so that's what we're about to see. But before we dig into that, let's look at this question. Why would it be so important a defense to make that Jesus is better than the angels? We've already said a lot of things that are far better than that, in my opinion, when I just look at that list. Why would this be such an encouragement to those who were struggling and doubting and considering abandoning faith and life in Jesus? Well, the clue for us is remembering who the original readers and hearers of the book of Hebrews were. So who were they? Who do we say that they were at the beginning when we were doing our background context stuff? They were what? I'm sorry? Uh, they, were, they were in Rome. That's, that's true. What else? They were Jewish, yes. So they were Jewish Christians. They were born Jewish by birth and then converted to Christianity, right? And what were they in danger of abandoning Jesus for? What do we say? Oh, you guys are much more awake than the 9 a.m. You've had more coffee. You've had more time to wake up. It's good. It's good. No, no judgment on them. Um, yeah, so they were, they were in danger of abandoning Jesus for the faith of their fathers, Through their temptation, their trials, their struggles and persecution, they were tempted to fall back into Judaism and to go back to depending on the law of the land, which was the Mosaic law or the Ten Commandments. Okay, now here's where it gets a little bit messy. Again, the argument I'm making is why this would be an important defense to make that Jesus is superior to the angels. So stay with me. I'm going to show you a verse from Acts 7. In Acts 7.38, Luke records Stephen, Luke who wrote Acts, uh, he records Stephen preaching about Moses having received the Mosaic law from an angel. Like, I don't remember this before when I've read Acts, but it's there. So Acts 7.38, speaking of Moses, says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us with an angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, it says. Then a few verses later, in the same sermon that Stephen is giving before the Sanhedrin, in verse 53 of Acts 7, Stephen says, you who received the law as delivered by angels. Here's another one. Galatians 3.19. 
uh, or the Apostle Paul is um, talking about the reason for the Mosaic law. And Paul says, why then the law? Verse 19, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, we don't have time to chase this rabbit the way that I would like to, um, but in some way, what we have to say when we look at these scriptures, in some way, the angels seem to have been involved in the giving of God's law to Moses. Okay, so if that's true, why would these arguments about Jesus being superior to angels be an encouragement to these folks who are hurting and doubting uh, in Rome? Well, in uh, what they were, if what they were in danger of doing in denying Jesus was falling back into um, a life that was governed by the Mosaic Law, which was God's revelation to his people as delivered by angels, then how much more, by comparison, should they persevere in their faith in the superior revelation of God to his people as delivered by Jesus, who is God himself? So revelation from God is the greatest, most trustworthy form of revelation that God could offer us or these early Jewish Christians. So better than the revelation of God as mediated through angels is this revelation of God delivered from himself, delivered from Jesus, which is what Jesus is offering them, revelation directly from himself. And so the author of Hebrews is thinking, if he can make this case to these doubting Jewish Christians that Jesus is better than the angels, then he's won his brothers and sisters to the only faith, to the only Messiah who can save them, and the only Messiah who can save you and me. So let's pick it up again in verse five, and we'll look at the first of these biblical arguments then, first of seven, concerning the superiority of Jesus over the angels. Verse five, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? So the author of Hebrews here is calling his first biblical witness, and he's calling that witness from a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. Now, psalm 2 is an enthronement psalm where the Savior and Messiah who was promised to come from David's kingly line is adopted as God's son. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is that Savior. He is that Messiah, and that God has given him the most excellent name in all creation, that he has called him his begotten son. Now, here's more tricky language, right? Uh, we have a hard time with words like son and begotten in passages like this because in English, they cause us to go to this place of asking, does that mean that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist? But that's not what we're seeing here. Rather, with Jesus having just made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of God, we have the already living son who's now being shown to be God's preeminent heir and the divine end point of this long-promised Davidic line who would come to save God's people from their sins. And so for all we can say about angels, we cannot say these things about them. Jesus' name is surely superior to the angels. In the second part of verse five, we find the author of Hebrews' second biblical argument for why Jesus is superior to the angels. And it's somewhat like the first. He says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Here, the author of Hebrews calls his second biblical witness, and it's a call of a witness from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 through 16, which says this, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
So again, God's Old Testament promises to King David are what's coming into view. And here in 2 Samuel, it's the prophet Nathan who's receiving this prophecy from God for King David, that the forever king and savior of the world is going to come from King David's family line. The author of Hebrews reminds us again that Jesus is this prophesied king and that he has been given the most excellent name even above the name of the angels, the name of God's son. Now, these first two arguments concerning Jesus' superiority remind us of language that we find throughout the New Testament if we look. So here's just a couple examples of that about the, the greater name of Jesus. In John 3, 16 and 17, for example, I think we'll have these up there for you, yeah. Uh, for God so loved the world, this is Jesus speaking, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Or in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, where the apostle Paul speaks of Jesus saying, and being, formed, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'll give you one more uh, from Ephesians 1, verses 17 through 23. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Sound familiar? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. Jesus' name as God's son is surely superior to the angel's. As we move into verse 6 then, we see the author of Hebrews make his third biblical argument. Picking up in verse 6 where it says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. The author of Hebrews is calling another biblical witness forward, and this time it's a set of witnesses, uh, first from Deuteronomy 32.43 and also from Psalm 97.7. But there are a few more tricky Greek-type questions that stem uh, from this set of references that we should talk about while we're here really quick. Um, now, I know most of you know Deuteronomy 32, 43, and Psalm 97, 7 by heart, right? Um, and so you're probably thinking when you look at um, this verse in Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 6, that that doesn't match up with what you see in your Old Testament when you look at Deuteronomy and the verse in Psalms. Um, and you'd be right. It's not going to read the same if you look up Deuteronomy 32.43 in your Bible as it does in the passage that we just read in Hebrews 1. And so here's what's true about this particular Old Testament reference and several of the other ones that we're going to look at in uh, Hebrews 1 and really throughout the whole book. It's, what's happening there is that uh, these references are coming from a Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures that was prominent in the days of the early church. The Greek translation of the Hebrews scripture is called the Septuagint, and that's where these references are coming from. For all intents and purposes, the Septuagint is the Bible of the author of Hebrews, and so he quotes from it a lot. And so where things don't match up word for word, when you're looking at these Old Testament references, for those of you who are studiers and are going to look at that afterwards, that's why they don't match, match up exactly. 
Now, there's lots of good questions that might come from that uh, as I try and very quickly breeze through that. And there are some good questions about that. But I just need you to know that the Septuagint was the Bible of most of the New Testament writers. This is the Bible that they were drawing from. And so it's a solid translation, and this shouldn't be a, a stumbling block. This shouldn't be a fly in the ointment as we try and learn the larger message of what Hebrews 1 is trying to teach us, okay? All right, you can ask me more later if you want. So uh, with all that said, let's go back to verse 6 now and what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us there. So from our context, um, when we see the word firstborn, that's another tricky word maybe. When we see that in verse 6, it's kind of like what we saw uh, earlier on when we saw the word begotten. And really what he's doing here, he's, he's just trying to, he's using another word to describe Jesus as God's preeminent son and heir. And then there's the word world there, which is also a little bit tricky in our word-for-word translations, and it can throw us a bit if we're not careful. What the word world means here, it's not speaking of Jesus' incarnation, which is, when I read it, that's the most natural thing to think of when he came into the world. But if we remember our context, if we look back at the first couple verses of the chapter, what's being talked about is Jesus returning to the heavenly world, to the heavenly realms that he stepped into when he sat down at the right hand of the Father after making purification for sin. And so with all that in mind, the argument being made here in verse 6 is really this, that no one is ever called to worship angels, but the angels are called to worship Jesus, especially upon his victorious entrance back into the heavenly realm after his ascension. And so that's the third argument from Scripture in the author of Hebrews' case for why Jesus is superior to the angels. We'll move on then to verses seven through nine. We'll, we'll find the authors uh, of Hebrews' fourth and fifth biblical arguments, and we'll find them in the form of a comparison this time. In verse seven, he's talking about angels. In verse eight and nine, he's talking about Jesus and then comparing those a bit. So we'll pick up in verse seven. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So again, Difficult Greek to try and understand. There's a number of ways that we can understand this. But if we look at the context, the larger context of Hebrews 1 and the whole book and uh, all that, what we are led to understand, what is probably most probable, is a meaning of something like this. God makes his angel messengers as swift as the winds, and God makes these angel servant ministers as powerful as great flames of fire, which execute God's judgment. And so these are good things to be said about the angels. This is a verse that's not saying disparaging things about angels, but saying angels are really, really powerful. They they are able to execute God's judgment. They're swift like the wind. They're powerful. They're wonderfully made by God, and they're demanding of our respect. And this biblical witness that we're just talking about here, this comes from Psalm 104, verse 4. But this is one of those examples where the Septuagint version of the Greek Old Testament more closely matches what we'd see here in Hebrew 1 verse 7. So that's one where it won't quite match up. But if you want to go home and dust off your Septuagint, your Greek Septuagint at home, um, what you can look up is actually Psalm 103 verse 4. uh, Because the addressing is a little bit different in the Septuagint than it is in the Old Testament that we're looking at. Okay, so... Next, we have then verse 7 and 8, which is a comparison, or verses 8 and 9, rather, which is a comparison to verse 7. Verse 8 says this, But the, of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The biblical witness concerning Jesus comes from Psalm 45, 6 through 7. That's what this quote is from, which is yet another psalm that the author of Hebrews is declaring to be a prophetic reference to the final Davidic king, King Jesus. And so the comparison between verse 7 about angels and verses 8 and 9 about Jesus is something like this. While God's angels are mighty and powerful and awesome, they're nothing by comparison to God's son, Jesus, whose existence, authority, and reign are eternal, whose holiness and righteousness are perfect, and whose anointing is beyond comparing with any other created being in any time ever. Jesus is surely superior to the angels. The author of Hebrews makes then his sixth biblical argument for the superiority of Jesus over the angels in verses 10 through 12. And it reads like this, And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now here, the author calls forth his next biblical witness, and it's from Psalm 102, 25 through 27. And it's an important argument for Jesus' superiority from the scriptures that these Jewish Christians that were first receiving this would have known really, really well. It's in essence a biblical defense of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 that we looked at at the beginning, which attested Jesus having created the world and to his ongoing sustaining of the world by the word of his power. And so the point of the psalmist in Psalm 102 He's trying to make it clear. This, this is about God's eternality, about his immutability, his unchangeableness, that while everything else is going to fade away like old clothes, it's going to wear out like old clothes that eventually just get stacked up and then either given away or thrown out, that that's what happens to everything else except Jesus. And so as a dad of three boys, as I was going through this verse, I was thinking if any verse in the Bible is true, then this one certainly is, because I can promise you that any bit of clothing that has gone from child number one to child number three, there's not much left of it. And so this is very, very true. All clothes, right, they're going to get folded up. They're eventually going to fade away. They're eventually going to become so thin and worn that they need to be discarded. And that's what everything else is like in comparison to Jesus. So you guys can pray for poor Colson, if you know us, if you know him, that his hand-me-downs, that he'd maybe get some new clothes or something. I don't know. But the point of the author of Hebrews in pulling forward Psalm 102 at, at this time in the passage is to show us that what's being said about God in the psalm is actually in its fullest sense talking about Jesus. That it's Jesus who laid the foundations of the earth and whose hands made the heaven. That it's Jesus who will remain while everything else that's created passes away. That it's Jesus whose years are eternal, who has no beginning and no end. None of these things can be said of the angels. None of these things can be said of the angels. Jesus is surely superior to the angels. As we move on to verse 13, we find the author of Hebrews' seventh and final biblical argument concerning the superiority of Jesus to the angels. Picking up in verse 13 then. And to which of the angels has he ever said to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Now, the point the author of Hebrews is making through this biblical witness, which is from Psalm 110, verse 1, is a lot like the point he was making with the other psalms that he's pulled forward. 
With each one of these psalms that he's pulled forward and referenced as a biblical witness, these facts are true. Jesus, the son, has a better name than the angels in these passages, in each one of them. Jesus is shown to be God in each one of them. And Jesus is shown to be the promised divine Davidic Messiah that these psalms and so many others speak of. But through this particular witness, we're also reminded again of Hebrews 1.3, where we saw at the beginning of our time that Jesus, after making purification for sin, sat down at the right hand of God in authority. But here he puts a little bit of an extra exclamation point on it with this whole vivid promise about the enemies of Jesus being subjugated to the role of his footstool. The scriptures definitely don't say that about the angels, but only about Jesus. Is there any doubt that Jesus is superior to the angels? And then finally, we get to verse 14, where without calling any more biblical witnesses forward, the author of Hebrews makes his closing argument, if you will, his closing statement, reminding us again of the great difference between Jesus and the angels. And so as the chapter closes, speaking of the angels, it says this. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So here, the author of Hebrews reminds us that while it's Jesus that's the one who's making provision for salvation, angels are sent out by God to serve and minister to those who are inheriting that salvation. And there's a big difference there. Those who are inheriting that salvation, by the way, that's, that's you and me. Jesus is surely far, far superior to the angels. And so that's it. We did it. We made it through uh, all of chapter 1. 14 verses, seven affirmations about the nature and character of Jesus, and then seven biblical arguments that show Jesus as superior to the angels. We're going to throw a summary slide up here. I'm not going to read it, but... I, I guess I just want you to reflect on it for a minute. There you go. To just let that soak in a little bit. Now, you and me, we might not be in danger of falling back into Judaism and choosing a life of dead works and slavery over Jesus like these Jewish Christians were. But consider for a minute, where is it in your life that you're in danger of walking away from Jesus? Because in that way, we're not so different from these Jewish Christians. Where is it in your life that you're in danger of walking away from Jesus? Where are you in danger of believing the grass might be greener if you'd just do things your way instead of God's way? Where is it in your life that you're already denying that Jesus is better through your thought life, through the words that you say to others, and through your choices to knowingly sin? Where are you in danger of worshiping an inferior false savior, or maybe 20, because it's more comfortable to compromise your faith and to play the long game of the Christian life, trusting that what his word says is good and true and worth it? Christians, my challenge to you is to allow yourselves to be convicted and then move to action by the truths of Hebrews chapter one. And then to, at the same time, not live in shame, but to receive the grace and freedom that God gives us through Jesus if we'll just turn to him in our struggles. Non-Christians, my challenge to you is to honestly answer that question. Do you really think you can find a savior with a better resume than Jesus? 
maybe for the first time, you're realizing that the God of the Bible, this Jesus that we've been talking about, that he's too big for you to deny any longer. And if that's you, then today's your day, and you don't have to leave here without knowing that you're secure in Jesus, that you're a Christian. And so don't leave here if that's you without praying to God to repent of your sins, to ask him to forgive you because he will, and then to give your life to him as Lord over you. Church, is Jesus enough? Hebrews 1 says he is. Is the one who created and sustains the world, who purified and paid for your sins and mine, is he worthy of our worship? Hebrews 1 says he is. Is Jesus your greatest affection? As we look at that list, Hebrews 1 says he should be. And the whole Bible tells us that if we'll make him our greatest affection and truly give our lives to making his name great, then this one we've been talking about with the name more excellent than the angels, this Jesus, he'll change our eternities. He'll change our eternities. Now I want us to turn to a time of responding to God's word and to what God's placed on our hearts today from Hebrews 1. And as we often do, we'll do that in several different ways. First, we'll respond through giving. So our financial stewards, uh, if they could come, and we'll begin by responding through giving. And just to be clear, if you've been here before, you've heard us say this, uh, we don't want to be a people that worship our money, but who worship with our money. And so that's why we joyfully give to the work that God is doing here. Um, But if you're a guest, uh, you're under no obligation to give. Uh, You're welcome to, but under no obligation to do so. Um, Second, I want to offer up some questions drawn out of the message today for us to consider uh, and respond to during our community groups and in personal reflection. So let me read a few of those for us. And they're in your... uh, They're in your weekly, in your Connect card there today as well. Number one, how has your view of angels changed as a result of our study in today's Hebrew passage, and why do our beliefs concerning angels matter? Number two, what do your thoughts, actions, and choices say about whether you doubt that Jesus is truly better and that God's ways are always better? Number three, how does an understanding of Hebrews 1.14 that angels minister to and serve God's people change your view of angels and maybe your view of God? Number four, what are the attributes used to describe Jesus in Hebrews 1, 1-14? And would a look at your choices and calendar and checkbook reflect an appropriate devotion to the God that is so described in that passage? And why or why not? And number five, what most convicted you from our study of Hebrews 1 today, and what is God asking you to do about it? So those are for your use uh, in personal reflection and in community groups. Another way that we'll respond is through communion, where all Christians who have trusted in Jesus as Savior and given our lives to follow him as Lord are welcome to receive the Lord's Supper elements. The bread reminding us of Jesus' body broken for us, the blood, or the, the juice and the wine reminding us of Jesus' blood shed for us. And even if you just became a Christian today, you're welcome to come to the table and partake of the Lord's Supper with us, maybe as your first act as a new follower, first act of worship as a new follower in Jesus. We'll also respond through song in worship to Jesus, and we'll do that after we pray. So why don't we do this? Why don't you stand, and um, we'll pray. I'll pray for us, and then uh, we'll respond.
Lord Jesus, you're better. But not just better than angels. You're better than any alternative, any false savior, any idol that we embrace that numbs our affection for you, that we let creep into our hearts and crowd you out. Lord God, protect us from temptation. Protect us from the lies of the enemy that would allow us to settle for something less than what you have for us. And God, may we leave here today encouraged and strengthened to persevere in our faith in you for your glory and for our good. Amen.